My name is Jesse Owens. I pastor Emanuel Church in Gallatin, Tennessee, and then I teach at Welch College uh, there in Gallatin as well. So today uh, I want to talk to you about religious liberty, and the title of the talk is Free Will Baptist and Religious Liberty, and I will try to say something about that. I uh, hope not to disappoint you. But most of what I want to talk about today is the origins of religious liberty in Baptist thought. So uh, what did early Baptists in the 17th century think about religious liberty? Um, one of the key distinctives, one of the key distinctives of the Baptist tradition is our defense of religious liberty. So from the earliest years, Baptists in England argued for religious liberty. And they argued for religious liberty, not only for themselves, but for all people. So uh, the early English General Baptist Thomas Helwes, uh, living in the late 1500s and early 1600s, wrote uh, to King James I. Uh, you're probably familiar with the King James Bible. Uh, so that King James. Uh, and he wrote to King James, and he said, Neither may the king be judged between God and man. Let them be heretics, Jews, Turks, or whatsoever, it appertains not to earthly power to punish them in the least measure. Uh, in Turks, he's there referring to, uh, to Muslims. So for Thomas Helwes, this early Baptist pastor and theologian, it wasn't the government's job, it's not the government's job to compel people to worship God. In fact, it isn't the government's job to force people to be Christians. So Helwes thought religion should be between God and man, not between man and the state. And uh, this is something that comes down to us as well. So for Helwes and for early Baptists, then true religious liberty was also not merely for Christians. And I think that that's, that, that's not something I'm going to dwell on a lot today, but I think it's something in the 21st century that we need to give a lot of thought to. When Thomas Helwes is arguing for religious liberty, he isn't arguing just for religious liberty for Christians. He's arguing for religious liberty for Jews and for Muslims uh, as well. So the earliest Baptists in England were a persecuted minority. They were often, uh, in the 17th century in particular, uh, imprisoned and fined. Sometimes they were even physically beaten for refusing to be a part of the Church of England. Uh, they didn't attend their parish church. They wouldn't have their children baptized in the church. And instead, they separated from the Church of England. They formed their own congregations and worshiped in accordance with what they believed the Bible taught about the nature of the church. And that wasn't easy for them. They had to physically suffer for these beliefs, but they were willing to do so. In fact, uh, in 1660, when Charles II came to the throne, the English General Baptists, uh, some of them there in England, put together a confession of faith, where they simply spelled out what they believed the Bible taught about key doctrines. And at the end of that confession of faith in 1660, after spelling out their beliefs, they said this to Charles II. And in the belief and practice of these things, it being the good old apostolic way, that, that's interesting from 1660, our souls have found that rest and soul peace, which the world knows not and which they cannot take from us. Of whom then should we be afraid? God has become our strength, our light, our salvation. Therefore, we are resolved through grace to seal the truth of these things in way of suffering, persecution, not only to the loss of our goods, freedoms, or liberties, but with our lives also, if called thereunto. 
And again, this wasn't an empty promise for the early General Baptists at this time. They did indeed suffer persecution. Their goods were confiscated. Some of them did indeed die for their convictions. And that's something I'll talk about in just a moment as we look at several key figures. So again, I know the title of this talk is Free Will Baptists and Religious Liberty, but most of what I want to say to you this afternoon is about early Baptist views of religious liberty, which I think should inform the way that we, as people even in 21st century America, think about religious liberty. I've already mentioned one of those to you in that the early Baptists argued for universal religious liberty or universal religious toleration. Sometimes I think we get the idea that religious liberty is a distinctly American concept. We think that it's something maybe birthed in the you know, 1770s, or maybe it came over here with the, with the pilgrims. And some of them did believe in religious liberty. But the truth is that Baptists, even in early America, even in early America, Baptists were persecuted by Anglicans and Congregationalists and others for their Baptist beliefs. So don't miss that. Early Baptists in America were persecuted for being Baptists in this country. I think sometimes we forget that. We think Mayflower came over and everybody was just excited and it was, you know, all stars and stripes and, you know, uh, fire, fireworks or something. It wasn't for the early Baptists. In this country, Baptists went to jail in this country for being Baptists. So, for Baptists then, arguments for religious liberty then begin in England with key figures. Uh, men like Thomas Helwes and John Merton and Roger Williams, and, and then in, in America, Roger Williams and John Clark, both of them having spent some time in England. So I want us to, this afternoon then, I want to acquaint you with three key figures in Baptist life on religious liberty. Uh, these men are Thomas Helwes, John Merton, and Roger Williams. And so after I say a little bit about those figures, I want to look at six key arguments that early Baptists used to defend their understanding of religious liberty. So look at six key arguments. But let's begin with these three key Baptist defenders of religious liberty. And the first of them is Thomas Helwes. Thomas Helwes was trained as a lawyer in London. Uh, he's a member of the Church of England until sometime around 1607, when he embraced what are referred to as separatist ideas. Basically, he thought the Church of England doctrinally uh, was beyond the pale. And so he separated from, he left the Church of England, along with another separatist figure by the name of John Smith. And they fled to Holland to escape persecution there in England. Now the two of them eventually went their separate ways on doctrinal issues, on, on important doctrinal issues. Uh, and around 1611, Helwes decided that he could not stay in Holland anymore and avoid persecution. He felt like he had to go back to his home country. He had to go back to England and face whatever it was that he would face there. And so in 1611, Helwes and his congregants returned to England. They established the first Baptist church on English soil uh, right around uh, 1612. Uh, in a little area Spitalfields, right outside of, uh, of London, right on the edge of London at that time. Now, Helwes was soon imprisoned by that same King James, and he died in prison sometime around 1615 or 1616. Now, before Helwes' imprisonment, he published a work entitled The Mystery of Iniquity. 
And it's often assumed that this was probably why he was imprisoned, because in the work, Helwes condemned infant baptism, and he also condemned Roman Catholicism, and he condemned the Church of England, and he condemned the Puritans because they didn't leave the Church of England. And he even condemned the separatists, people who had left the Church of England, because some of them continued to baptize infants. Now, Helwes believed that each of these groups had undermined the biblical understanding of the church. And he believed that their wrong understanding of the church uh, was the reason that uh, they had ended up persecuting for the faith. And I'll try to explain what I mean by that uh, in a moment. But Helwes flatly rejected all forms of religious persecution. The second figure that I want to acquaint you, acquaint you with is a man by the name of John Merton. John Merton was a close associate of Thomas Helwes. In fact, when Helwes is imprisoned and ultimately dies, John Merton replaces him as pastor of that congregation there in Spitalfields. We don't have a lot of biographical detail about John Merton, but we do know uh, that he published several works like Helwes, and he was an ardent defender of religious liberty. Merton wrote several treatises on religious liberty, and he made a lot of arguments that were similar to Helwes. Uh, I was going to give you some of the names of some of them because they're fun, because they're really long, but I'll, uh, I'll skip that. But you want, I'll read one of them. How about that? Okay, the first one is objections answered by way of dialogue, wherein is proved by the law of God, by the law of our land, and by His Majesty's many testimonies that no man ought to be persecuted for his religion. And there's still a little bit more after that. <laughs> there's another work as well. But in these works, which we'll consider some of, Merton defended religious liberty, and he rejected the role of civil authorities, of kings, uh, and other authorities in matters of religion. The third figure that I want to acquaint you with is a man by the name of Roger Williams, uh, who was a Baptist, uh, not for all of his life, but he was for a period of time. Many people don't know the name Thomas Helwes or John Merton, but they might have heard of Roger Williams. If you've ever been to Providence, Rhode Island, uh, you've probably heard something about Roger Williams there. Uh, he established the first Baptist church in America in the 1630s there in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, there's a, a beautiful building there uh, in, in Providence uh, that you can, you can still visit today. But Williams was an ardent defender of religious liberty as well in the American colonies. He was also involved in the establishment of Rhode Island as a colony. But he's probably best known for his work, The Bloody Tenant of Persecution, which he published in 1644. And the book was read widely in America. Uh, even by some of the founding fathers, they read Williams's work on religious liberty. Now, here's the reason I find that uh, very fascinating, Williams's work. The reason is this. Uh, some segments of, the, of, of Free Will Baptists find their origins in the English General Baptists. And so Helwes and Merton are early English General Baptists, and they're writing, and, the, and their works aren't widely read. But Merton's work, in particular on religious liberty, finds its way into Roger Williams's work. In fact, Roger Williams, in his book on persecution, The Bloody Tenet of Persecution, actually includes some of Merton's writings in there. So it's fascinating to me to think about even some of the founding fathers would have encountered in Roger Williams' work, The Bloody Tenet of Persecution, the early English General Baptist uh, John Merton's writings because Williams republished them. Now, there are a host of other Baptists beyond Helwes, Merton, and Williams that we could consider on religious liberty. 
But I want to limit us to these three figures, focusing primarily, though, on Helwes and Merton, because I believe that we see in their writings uh, some of the most important, some of the most central arguments for religious liberty in general, and more specifically, for a Baptist understanding of religious liberty. That's something I want you to take away from, from our time today. It, it might seem rather strange to you that there is a distinctly Baptist case or a distinctly Baptist argument for religious liberty. But there is. There is. In fact, in the early uh, 1600s, almost no one, almost no one in the English-speaking world was arguing for religious liberty. Almost no one, almost no one in the English-speaking world in the early 1600s was arguing for religious liberty, especially not for people like Baptists, and certainly not for people like uh, Jews and, and Muslims. But the early English Baptists were. They were. And it, I, here, here's what I want to try to take a moment to explain to you in just a second. But, but listen closely here. It was the same principles, it was the same principles that led Baptists to embrace a Baptist view of baptism. That is, believers' baptism. Not the baptism of infants, which was almost universally practiced in the English-speaking world. Uh, on the continent, you have the Anabaptists, which uh, the Baptists come into contact with, and, and, and that's significant. But in the English-speaking world, almost no one is baptizing believers. But the early Baptists were. It's the same principles that led them to embrace that view of baptism and the understanding of the church, of regenerate church membership, that the church is a believer's church. The members of the church are to be baptized believers. And the nature of the church as a voluntary association that led them to embrace religious liberty. To say that more succinctly, the very same things that led them to become Baptists led them to embrace religious liberty. They had a very distinctly Baptist view and Baptist arguments for religious liberty. Okay, so let's look at these six key arguments for religious liberty. And I want to start by making sort of a preliminary point. The early Baptist case for religious liberty was a biblical argument. It was a biblical case. So later in the, in the, in the 17th century, you have figures like John Locke who do argue for religious liberty. And Locke does appeal to the Bible some, but not in the same way that the early Baptists do. His argument for religious liberty is based upon uh, the, the power of human reason, uh, the, the power of the individual to, to make decisions and to choose. It's not the same sort of argument that the early Baptists are making. When Thomas Helvis, John Merton, Roger Williams, these men argue for religious liberty, they argue from the Bible in careful, nuanced ways. Now, here's something you're probably familiar with, and I, because I think it's true in our, in, our, in our nation. Sometimes people will argue, and I think they assume, that the less religious, the less religious a society becomes, the more religious freedom or toleration that you might have. So the less religious society becomes, the more tolerant that society becomes of other religions. Well, I don't have to tell you much in the year 2023, uh, the year of our Lord, that um, becoming more secular and less religious does not necessarily lead to 
greater or more toleration. In fact, uh, there, there's a fascinating work that, that looks at this, and it, it looks at these early Baptist figures, and it, and it demonstrates, I think, rather clearly that, uh, that in the early Baptists, what you have is a greater argument for religious toleration than you ever find in people who reject the Bible and become secular. In fact, I think oftentimes the more secular a society becomes, ultimately really the more intolerant it becomes, certainly the more intolerant it becomes of those who are religious. Uh, we, we experience and we see that in our own culture today. So the early Baptists argued for religious liberty from the Bible, from the Bible. Okay, let me give you these six key arguments for religious liberty. Six key arguments for religious liberty from the Baptist. The first is this. For the early Baptists, religious liberty was about biblical ecclesiology. Biblical ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is just the understanding of the nature of the church. What, it, what is the church? Its ordinances, its members, all of those things. That's what we're talking about when we're thinking about biblical ecclesiology. Their arguments for religious liberty were first and foremost about biblical ecclesiology. So if you want to understand why Baptists in the 17th century in England argued for religious liberty, and then later in the American colonies, you cannot miss this essential point. It was about a right understanding of the church. What the early Baptists wanted was freedom to worship God in accordance with what they thought the Bible said about baptism, that it was for believers. What the Bible said about regenerate church membership, that the church is a believer's church, and the nature of the church. Each of these, each of these points were essential to their argument for religious liberty. There is this direct correlation between their argument for Baptist ecclesiology and religious liberty. And I want to give you a couple of examples of this, and, I, and I'm going to dwell on this for a moment because it's probably one of the most important things that I, that I want you to understand today. Um, all of these points, when we think about baptism, the nature of the church, regenerate church membership, all of these points, all of these points for the early Baptists were founded upon what they believed was an essential distinction between the old covenant people of God and the new covenant people of God. Uh, one scholar says about the early Baptists, they had a distinctly New Testament view of the church. And I think they do. Ha have you ever wondered why, let, let's use Presbyterians as an example. Have you ever wondered why Presbyterians baptize, uh, well, have you ever wondered why they put water on uh, infants. Have you ever wondered why they baptize infants? Is it just because they read the book of Acts and their household baptisms uh, and they just assume from that that there must have been children in those households? Is that the only reason that they argue for that? No. It, it's based upon a broader reading of the Bible. There are certain types of continuity that they see between the old covenant people of God and let's say uh, the descendants of Abraham, the physical descendants of Abraham, and the new covenant people of God. So here's what I mean by that. In the way that Abraham's physical descendants would have received the old covenant sign of circumcision, 
they argue from that and say, therefore, the new covenant people of God, within the new covenant people of God, they should receive, children should receive the new covenant symbol, which is baptism. So they argue for a certain type of continuity between the covenant sign among the old covenant people of God, circumcision for male infants, and the covenant sign of baptism for the new covenant people of God. So that's part of the way that they argue for the baptism of infants. It's not solely based upon New Testament text. It's a way of reading the entirety of the Bible and seeing certain types of continuity between the old covenant and the new covenant. I, I hope you'll see how all this comes together in just a moment. The Baptists rejected this way of understanding uh, continuity between the Old and New Covenants. They didn't think that there was complete discontinuity between the Old and New Covenants, but they didn't think there was the same kind of continuity between the Old and New Covenants. So they would feel comfortable saying that Abraham is the prototype and the one that God establishes with this, this Old Covenant. But they would also say that he is the prototype of the New Covenant people of God, right? Because he receives, Abraham himself, receives the covenant sign. His physical descendants under the old covenant receive the covenant sign. But what is it in the New Testament that the New Testament authors say it means to be a true child of Abraham, a true descendant of Abraham? Jesus himself says it. We find it in the other uh, apostles. It's not being a physical descendant of Abraham. It's being like Abraham and having faith. It's those who believe who are recipients of the new covenant sign. This is how they come to the conclusion that baptism is for believers. And, and so they see continuity between the old and new covenants, but they also see discontinuity between the old and new covenants. There are things that are different between the old covenant people of God and the new covenant people of God, and that's how they arrive at their understanding of believer's baptism. It's also how they arrive at their understanding of the nature of the church as being a believer's church. So they argue that members of a church should be regenerate. They should be believers. It's a believer's church. So within the old covenant, right, you have the physical descendants of Abraham. They receive the covenant sign. They're considered members of the covenant community. But that distinction we see, the covenant sign for new covenant people is baptism for believers. They're the ones who receive the covenant sign. And it's those baptized believers who are to be received into the church. So that's how they arrive at a Baptist understanding of the nature of the church. And by the way, these are things that we argue for and affirm today. But it also informed their view of religious liberty. And this is, this is how. And, and it kind of leads to, to my second point. And my second point is this, of this key Baptist arguments for religious liberty. And it's that no earthly kingdom is corollary to the nation of Israel. No earthly kingdom is corollary to the nation of Israel. I'm going to have to lose this code. It's, it's entirely too hot in here. Um, no earthly kingdom is corollary to the nation of Israel. So remember, I said that they see discontinuity. I've got to get the uh, thing out here. They see discontinuity between the old covenant people of God and the new covenant people of God. And that, under, that affects their understanding of the nature of the church. But it also informs their understanding of religious liberty. 
And here's how. The underlying argument for a national church, like the Church of England, the underlying argument for a national church is that there is this parallel between the nation of Israel and its kings and England and the Church of England and its kings. That's why you have Henry VIII acting as something like the head of the church. In fact, uh, if you watched any of the coronation of Prince Charles, I think you see something of that even then. It's imbued with this religious significance. And it isn't merely that they believe in the divine right of kings. They believe that, uh, that the, the king operates in this almost priestly fashion. But the Baptists rejected this understanding, this corollary between the nation of Israel and any earthly kingdom. So for there to be a Church of England, there has to be this analogy between Israel and the nation of England. So what early Baptists did was focus their efforts on disproving what they believed to be a false analogy. In other words, England is not a new Israel. The kings of England are not kings like Josiah or some other king. They, they don't function in that capacity. And that's because the early Baptists saw a distinction under the new covenant between the temporal or earthly realms and earthly kingdoms and the spiritual realm. In the temporal realm, in the earthly realm, an earthly king or magistrate could rule in civil matters. But in the spiritual realm, that is in the church, in matters of faith and practice, Christ alone rules as king. Christ alone rules as king. England is not a nation like Israel. Uh, Timothy George, the, the Baptist historian, calls this an asymmetrical hermeneutic. And basically he's saying the Baptists have a particularly New Testament understanding of the church. So the king of England and the nation of England does not function like the nation of Israel. And it does not function in the same way that you have Old Testament kings. It isn't a theocracy uh, in the same way. The early Baptists argued that the key turning point in history, in human history, for the establishment of this distinction is the coming of Christ. That's what changes everything. In fact, they would refer to the period in which they were living, the time in which they were living as these gospel times. These gospel times. Jesus has come. You remember when Jesus is having the Last Supper with his disciples, what is it that he says? He, he says that the New Covenant or the New Testament is established in his own blood, right, at, at that time with his disciples. It is the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. It is the establishment of the new covenant. And it is because of the coming of Jesus uh, that there is no parallel between Old Testament Israel and earthly kings or earthly kingdoms. Third, the early Baptists argued that the church belongs to Christ. The church belongs to Christ. He is the head of the church not any civil ruler. The church belongs to Christ. He's the one who functions as the head of the church. It does not belong to any civil ruler. So basically, this is another argument that they're making that the king or the civil magistrate, the civil authority, doesn't have the power to step in and to impose himself in matters of faith. Listen to what Thomas Helwes said to James I. Listen to what he said. This is, um, this is actually in a handwritten note that is uh, 
uh, in the front of Helwes's, uh, one of his key works, uh, Defending Religious Liberty. Here's, here's what he writes. Think about writing this directly to the king. Of course, he died in prison uh, too, so <laughs> keep that in mind. But here's what he said. The king is a mortal man and not a god. Therefore, he has no power over the immortal souls of his subject to make laws and ordinances for them and to set up spiritual lords over them. If the king has authority to make spiritual lords and laws, then he is an immortal god, not a mortal man. What, what Helvis is saying is that the ultimate authority in matters of religion in the life of the church, in matters of faith and practice. Those things do not belong to civil authorities and civil powers. Uh, civil leaders don't have authority over Christ's church. That does not belong to any civil ruler. Fourth, the early Baptists argued that uh, religious liberty was the only way to bring about true worship. Religious liberty was the only way to bring about true worship. So in England, men and women were compelled by threats of fines or imprisonment to attend worship and to have their children baptized in their parish church. One argument that early Baptists used to undermine religious persecution and the established church in England was to argue that God does not accept and God is not interested in compulsory worship. Now, if you think about the Old Testament, what is one of the common rebukes that the Lord gives to his people? It's that their worship is a mere formality. It, it does not flow from a heart that loves him. It doesn't flow in faith. It's mere external conformity. And what the early Baptists argued was for uh, England with an established church is you can make people go to church. You can force them to go and you can tell them to kneel and they might even kneel when you, when you tell them to. They, they might do whatever it is that you tell them to. But all you can do is compel hypocrisy. You cannot compel, you cannot create true worship. True worship only comes about through religious freedom or religious liberty. Compulsory worship never brings about true worship. And a big part of the reason for that is faith cannot be compelled. Faith cannot be compelled. Faith is a work of God in the heart of sinners. It is God who convicts. It is God who draws. Civil authorities cannot coerce faith. They cannot coerce, coerce faith in the same way that they can't coerce us to believe any of the other junk they throw at us, right? You cannot coerce faith. They understood this. It was the gift of God. It was the work of the Holy Spirit. But early Baptists also argued from this point that the only form of acceptable worship uh, to God was in faith, which meant that the magistrate could not compel, the civil authorities could not compel men to worship, since compelling men to worship without faith was to compel them to do false worship. Fifth, religious persecution is at odds. They believe religious persecution is at odds with the example of Jesus and the apostles. Religious persecution is at odds with the example of Jesus and the apostles. Jesus did not tell the apostles, if you read the book of Acts, right? He doesn't tell them in the gospels, you don't see them doing this, to drag men out of their homes to worship, 
or to throw them into jail for not worshiping in accordance with the dictates of the civil authorities. That's not what he says. <laughs> he doesn't say, now you go into the next town and you knock, and if they don't come, you drag them out. That's not what he says. Instead, Jesus tells the apostles to go from city to city, preaching the gospel. When a city does not receive their preaching, when they won't hear them, what is it that Jesus tells them to do? Not to persecute them, not to force them or compel them, but to dust off their sandals and go to the next town. And the reason that they did so is because Christ's kingdom, they believe, was not ultimately of this world. And that's significant because they also believed, related to that, that the weapons of Christ's kingdom were not of this world. They were spiritual weapons for a spiritual kingdom. It's the very reason, by the way, that Jesus rebukes Peter, right? And he cuts off Malchus's ear. What does he say? And the Baptists, oh, they love this one. They love this text. My kingdom is not of this world. And the Baptists understood that. So the idea that you have a national church or the state in general forcing people to come to, to, to church or to, to worship within the Church of England was at odds with what the Bible taught. They also held out hope. They also held out hope, uh, referring to the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 20, that people who were not compelled, they weren't forced, that they would repent and believe the gospel. They would evangelize and hope that people would repent and be saved. So uh, here's one of the things that they said. Because they who are now tares, let, let me pause before I say this. Um, in the, one of the common arguments for an established church, like in the Church of England, is that the church should consist of believers and unbelievers. They should all be in here. We have a national church. Everyone's baptized into the church. We have a national church. And the reason is because you have things like the parable of the wheat and the tares. They're allowed to grow together and exist together within the church. What the Baptist said is the wheat and the tares are allowed to continue together in the world, but not in the church. And it's Jesus who separates them in the end. But they're not to coexist in the church. It's that they exist in the world. But, but they held out hope that they would repent and believe. So here's what they said. Because they who are now tares may hereafter become wheat. They that now resist him may hereafter receive him. They that are now in the devil's snare, even adversaries to the truth, may hereafter come to repentance. Some come not till the 11th hour, Matthew 20, verse 6. If those that come not to the last hour should be destroyed, killed, because they come not at the first. They should never come, but be prevented. So their arguments against persecution often included an argument for evangelism. And that shouldn't be taken lightly, particularly in the cases of Merton and Helwes. Because I would remind you, Helwes was safe in Holland. And he actually went back to England because he was concerned for his people there. He wanted to evangelize them. He wanted them to be safe. He didn't feel right about being in safety in Holland while people were being persecuted for being Baptists in England or persecuted for being believers in England. And so he goes back for that particular purpose. Sixth, and finally here. A Baptist view of religious liberty also includes being, and maybe this might be the most controversial, I don't know, uh, also includes being committed to obeying civil authorities as ordained by God, except when, except when the things that they command are at odds with the teachings 
of Scripture. So for all that we've said about the General Baptist, the early Baptist, and their rejection of the role of civil authorities in the life of the church, I don't want you to misconstrue that as them saying that civil authorities had no role. They didn't believe that. They believed that civil authorities were given by God as an ordinance of God for the maintenance of that which is good. Of course, right, one of the great, the great dangers is that civil authorities might call that which is good evil, right? And that which is evil good, which is something of what I think that they thought was happening in their own country, certainly something we see in our own. But they were committed to obeying civil authorities in civil matters so long as they were not at odds with the teachings of Scripture. They outright rejected the authority of the kings or civil authorities in matters of faith. But they did not reject civil authority or the role of the king altogether. So when it comes to obedience to the magistrate in civil matters, Helwes actually argued that it was the responsibility of every citizen to obey the magistrate, to pray for him, and not to speak evil of him. Obviously drawing on uh, some of Paul's admonition there. Um, this responsibility was due to Helwes' belief in texts like Romans 13, though, where it teaches that, and Helwes says, that the magistrate or the civil authority is a holy ordinance of God, a holy ordinance of God. In another place, Helwes actually argues that the king has authority to demand all sorts of things. Here's what he says. Let this kingdom, let this kingdom, power and honor fully satisfy our Lord the king's heart and let it suffice the king to have rule over people's bodies and goods. But he went on to say, do not let our Lord the king give his power to be executed over the spirits of his people, for they belong to another kingdom which cannot be shaken, differing from all earthly kingdoms. By the way, getting that sense of the distinction between the Old Testament uh, Old Testament Israel and its kings, and kings like England. So what positive role did the magistrate have in early Baptist writings on religious liberty? Well, they argued that it was the responsibility of the civil magistrate to enforce, to enforce what they referred to as, uh, they often called it the second table of the law, the second table of the law. They thought that the king had the authority to enforce civil matters that we find in the second table of the law because they believed that these were universal principles built into the created order, given to us by God. And they thought it was the king's responsibility uh, to enforce those things. But they argued against the idea. They always argued against the idea that the king had a responsibility to enforce the first table of the law. So the magistrate, the civil authority, has power, has power to enforce that second table, but not the, fir the first. And so John Merton puts his finger right on the difficulty of the issue when he says, uh, he asks, Where has God given all kings charge over his worship and spiritual service? So for everything that the early Baptists said about we must obey civil authorities in civil matters, we must be obedient. They saw governing authorities as a holy ordinance of God. And I think we have to be careful in our age when, 
when so much seems to come at us that is certainly at odds with the teachings of Scripture, things that we cannot give into, things that we cannot abide with, that we don't throw out our responsibility to obey civil authorities altogether, right? We don't reject their authority altogether. The New Testament makes it clear that is God-given authority. But what they are exceedingly clear on is this. The magistrate's authority, the government's authority has limits. It has limits. It does not extend into the spiritual realm. So as we think about these key Baptist figures and defenders of religious liberty and these key Baptist arguments for religious liberty, I think we can see some of the application that comes over into our own day. What we're after is religious freedom or religious liberty that enables us to worship God in accordance with the teachings and commands of Scripture. That's what we're after. We want to act in accordance with and in obedience to the teachings of Scripture. But we also cannot lose sight of the responsibility that we bear to live in obedience to civil authorities, to pray for them, by the way, to pray for their conversion as well. I think that's one of the things that Paul is hinting at, that, that Jesus died for all people, and we should pray for all of them, including kings and authorities. Um, so we, we walk this tightrope or balance between uh, desiring a godly, biblically ordered church and obedience to civil magistrates.